Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Puerto Rico is still reeling from the destruction caused by Hurricane Maria. From the start, independent and local organizations stepped up to help Puerto Ricans on the island and those starting over on the United States mainland. Two local activists and organizers join us to tell us how Massachusetts is helping Puerto Rico. Later in the show, it's a Cinderella tale, an immigration narrative, and a story of sports redemption. Soccer is one of the games that kids play in the refugee camps. That translated easily to the open spaces of Lewiston. It's very much a hockey town that began to see a lot of soccer. Author Amy Bass chronicles the inspiring story of Lewiston, Maine's Blue Devils soccer team in her book, One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me in the studio, Aixa Bosham, co-chair of the Massachusetts United for Puerto Rico Fund. Hello, Aixa. Hello, Callie. And Gladys Vega, Executive Director of the Chelsea Collaborative. Welcome, Gladys. Gracias. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to have both of you. This is a very important conversation. I want to start it with a reality check <clears throat> because people may not know this. In October, Congress passed a relief bill, a giant relief bill, for the victims of Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria. That would include Puerto Rico because that's where Maria hit. Designated for Puerto Rico was $4.7 billion dollars. And just recently, we have learned that the U.S. Treasury, without explanation, has cut that allocation in half. So now we're down to $2 billion. And it can sound like, well, $2 billion is $2 billion, but we're talking about massive need. And it's important as we begin the conversation about what your organizations are doing here in Massachusetts to understand now even more the need is great for the work that you are doing because the federal government um, has really cut back on its obligation as voted on. So that's a context. And we can get back to that as we talk about what's going on. But I did want people to understand that. And first, maybe just get a reaction from the two of you when you heard that, because the governor of um, Puerto Rico is very, very upset. Gladys. I would say that um, from the beginning, we all felt that um, when this happened in Puerto Rico, millions of life were forever changed but our government never step up. So I am upset to hear that amount of money that we are being cut, but I am not surprised. Citizens of Puerto Rico continue to be treated as second class, and we continue to be completely ignored, and the needs of Puerto Rico are not longer in the media. So it makes it very hard for those Puerto Rican families out in the homeland to continue to survive. I mean, the devastation continues. Puerto Rico became a third world country in six hours. And um, it's no longer in the news. And mm. But the needs are still there. If anything, they're greater than before mm. because it continues to 
lack electricity, water, food, and resources. So I really think that is upsetting. It's extremely upsetting. But that is why we're having to do all these efforts that we're doing because common citizens and common people are stepping out from poor communities to make sure that at least we take that responsibility that our federal government is not taking. Ike, so you want to add to that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to clarify, that Treasury bill is a loan. The $4 billion is a loan. Mm-hmm. And as That's, you said, thank you for $2 billion of it mm-hmm. has been put on hold because they want to see how Puerto Rico does. So even if they allocate the $4 billion, we're talking about a need of $104 billion. We all realize and we know that the progress has been slow and the treatment unfair by the federal government. And I didn't dig into the statistics, but I I'd like to know what Florida and Texas hey, me got, too. right? Yes, yes. And and did they have loans or did I'm assuming that they had a lot of grants because it is apparent the untreatment and the response has been just completely unfair. When you're talking about 3.4 million American citizens, it's just horrendous. I'm so glad that you brought up that it was a loan, and we should also add that there are some conditions. So they've have the amount. And now they're adding conditions that were not a part, again, of the legislation as passed in October. So we'll, in the next few days, understand what that's all about. But one of them I know that the governor has spoken to, Roseo has spoken to, and that is that they will not forgive any loans. So once the loans are accepted as a way for the island to begin to, to get back on its feet with federal monies, those monies will never be forgiven. Exactly. So, and I don't yeah. know, Kelly, if you also know that there's currently a budget resolution by Democrats being pushed that's going to be voted on on March 23rd around additional funds for Puerto Rico. And some of it has to do with the loan issue. Well, let's take a listen before we move on to what's happening here in the state. This is Elizabeth Warren. She was speaking in October 2017. And uh, since Maria hit and caused the devastation that it hit, she's been talking about the responsibility of the federal government. So this is Elizabeth Warren speaking to Western Massachusetts residents regarding the crisis in Puerto Rico and the government's response in October 2017. This is the responsibility of our government, the government that is supposed to work for us, And my job is to help push our government to do what is morally right and to do it as quickly as possible and bring relief to the island of Puerto Rico. So that's why I'm here. So I know that she'll be one of the voices pushing for this relief in Congress, as she has been. Let's start taking a look here, because that's the point of this conversation. So let's talk about what's happening with the Chelsea Collaborative first. What was it like when you got the news and sort of had to go into action, and then how you responded? So first, it was three and a half days without knowing anything about our families. So that piece was extremely hard for many Puerto Ricans that we didn't hear anything about families, not knowing if they were alive or dead. And then on Sunday was like, When I go into my office, what are we doing on Monday when 63% of my population is immigrant, not so many Puerto Ricans, right? And I've been dedicating my life, my 30 years of work, to a Latino immigrant community in Chelsea. How am I going to ask people, can you please do something for Puerto Ricans? Um, Because this just happened. To my surprise, I went on Facebook. I made a plea in I thought it was going to be a one week of donations, probably 50 pounds of water and whatever. I thought that it was going to be something so minor. To my shock and surprise, Chelsea poorest people were bringing in 
hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds of food. I mean, we collected 250,000 pounds of food and water. We sent three huge cargos to Puerto Rico. And it was people that I knew that had limited resources using whatever they had and doing groceries to Puerto Rico. And for me, if there was anything that was amazingly rewarding was poor people giving to another poor country. Mm. It was amazing to see that, um, but it was more amazing to see how we all came together, how local police department, Boston police department, people from Winthrop, doctors from um, Rhode Island were, were calling me to collect things, you know, in another state. But the outpour of support was amazing for me. Although in Puerto Rico, the donations were not getting as quick as we anticipated. In Puerto Rico, the governor and the politics of the island were completely being controlled by the federal government. It was a huge challenge for us because we kept thinking, you know, people are being hungry. And we saw people basically saying, I have no water, no food, no place to go. You know, nobody has visited us in the rural areas. And here we and, are. And in fact, you contacted churches in the areas that were very hardest to get to. Yes, we mm-hmm. had. We worked with three churches where the eye of the storm entered in Puerto Rico. So for it was very, very critical that we focus on those three places, Guayama, Patillas, Arroyo, small cities in Puerto Rico where they were, the devastation was huge. And we identified these three churches, and those people went out there with family members and delivered food. I mean, it was amazing to think about Jose Moreno. Jose Moreno is a guy that lost everything. He literally built his home in a small shed of wood, plastic blue tarp, and took a shower in the river and cooked in the trunk of his Mm -hmm. old car. That's what Puerto Ricans were doing in order for them to survive. So that gives you a good sense of not only the personal connection here in Massachusetts. Sometimes I think people may not think that, you know, we have people here with very personal connection. And I think it's important to know that while you were pulling this together, you yourself didn't know what might have happened to your families. That's important information. That's my guest, Gladys Vega. She's executive director of the Chelsea Collaborative. Over to you, Aitza, because... You are a part of the Mass United Fund for Puerto Rico. And so talk about what that is and how it came together and has really been moving toward making a difference. So, Callie, when we uh, heard about the devastation that was going on in Puerto Rico, within a few days we organized. And the beauty of this is that there's a fund at the Boston Foundation called the Latino Legacy Fund, which is made up of a group of corporate leaders and nonprofit leaders that looks at funding issues and, and concerns in our Latino community. And because of that, we were able to catapult very quickly to establish the Massachusetts United Fund for Puerto Rico with the Boston Foundation because we We already had a history of working with them. Originally, we thought we were going to raise a million dollars that were going to be focused on relief efforts for Puerto Rico. To date now, we have about almost $3.5 million dedicated to relief, recovery, and relocation here for self-evacuees that are going. The beauty of this fund is it's being advised by a group of trusted corporate, nonprofit, Latino leaders who really have the know-how of what's happening in Puerto Rico and have been able to to 
quickly fund organizations that are on the ground because the nonprofit, the third sector in Puerto Rico, were the ones that just rose to the call to action in their communities. And it was the local community-based organizations, the larger ones also, but the local community-based organizations. And often philanthropy overlooks those local community-based organizations. So our fund was dedicated to really helping the efforts that. And let me just interrupt you for one second because people may be remembering that the Red Cross got into a lot of trouble in Haiti for not connecting locally. And so all of this money and the resources that had been donated by people who were trying to help in that awful tragedy couldn't get directly because they were not recognizing. So I want to underscore what you're saying here. It is very important that you know on the ground who is doing the work. So continue. Absolutely. (laughs) And again, I just want to reiterate that that power of bringing together community leaders to do this work is critical and vital because they know their communities and they can get things up in the ground running. Interesting that you mentioned the Haiti Fund because the Boston Foundation also got involved in the Haiti Fund, and it was their know-how and their experience from the Haiti Fund that also helped get the Massachusetts United Fund off the ground and delivering services. I'm just going to give you a a quick example of one of the organizations. It's called uh, La Fondita de Jesus, which is uh, an organization in Puerto Rico that deals with the homeless. Now, they had to respond to the needs of their community, right? Because it was huge. People Mm -hmm. were hungry. Mm -hmm. People were had no no place to live. They had no place Mm -hmm. to live. Mm -hmm. Fondita said, we're going to open our doors to everyone, right? And for us to provide a grant to them of $40,000 to be able to do that was instrumental in their ability to not only deliver more food and more services and water, but to really tend to people who now are homeless who were not homeless before. So that's just one small way our dollars were effective. But again, the need is so great, Hallie, that we continue to fundraise for the fund and continue also to recognize that over almost half a million people, Callie, have left Puerto Rico because of the dire situation there that are coming here to the states. And I don't know the last figures for Massachusetts, but we're talking about probably five to 7,000 families who are here right now in Massachusetts. And let's not even go into what's going to happen on March 20th when their housing vouchers expire. Yeah, hold that thought. I want to get right to that. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Aixa Beauchamp. You just heard her of the Massachusetts United for Puerto Rico Fund and Gladys Vega of the Chelsea Collaborative. And we're discussing the Massachusetts response and relief efforts toward the people of Puerto Rico. So Gladys, we just walk right into where we need to go, which is about what's happening on the ground with this FEMA housing. This is critical information. The Boston Globe has just editorialized about the federal government needing to pay attention to this again. People should understand that FEMA housing is always known as temporary. However, they have been making decisions about when people's temporary housing ends at the last minute and seemingly without warning and no reasoning. They're not explaining why this date now is the date as opposed to any other date so that people can prepare. So what's been happening in Chelsea as you've been dealing with that? So I have to say that thanks to the Latino Legacy Fund, we were one of the beneficiaries of the local efforts of the people that were moving from Puerto Rico here. We assigned a case manager, and we have held approximately 300 people that have come from Puerto Rico 
to Chelsea, to Everett, to Winthrop, to Riviere, to the surrounding communities. And one of the biggest things is that we have approximately right now 55 families in hotels around the area that are FEMA hotel. We are going crazy thinking what's going to happen in March 20th. And that, that's the deadline to and that's the Yeah, that's the deadline of the FEMA deadline. But this has not been the first deadline, the FEMA. I mean, not long ago, they had another deadline and there was not enough notice. And we were like, oh, my God, I have to run to Target, buy mattresses, because if people don't have a place, they're going to be in the Chelsea Collaborative, but they're going to stay there. No one is going to be homeless. So I really think that this whole situation with the federal government continues to be so puzzling just because they do things like an afterthought. They are not planning ahead. They set up these deadlines and, you know, homeless situation in Massachusetts is a huge problem. What makes you think that we're going to be able to place all these 5,000, 7,000 families of Puerto Rico who recently moved here? I mean, the governor of Massachusetts has done a lot to help, but he has a huge crisis situation before Puerto Ricans were moving in as evacuees. And I should point out that Massachusetts has the second largest relocated population of Puerto Ricans who've been displaced from the island. Yes. And that includes about 2,400 uh, young people who are students. Just by putting that on the table, you understand there are so many attendant issues. Yes. Um, not only where people live, how the kids can get into school. There's been a lot uh, done working toward trying to make sure that they can have a space, be welcomed, all of that. But it takes a minute. You just don't do it overnight, Aisa. Absolutely. (laughs) And the Mass United Fund recognizes that this is a huge issue. You know, just to also just let you know, I want to harp on the unfairness of this federal government. So when we look at Katrina, we look at the fact that housing assistance was offered over number of years. I think it was five to seven yes. years, right? Yes. We're talking about... And by the way, it's still not over de- Exactly. Yes. Okay. We're talking about mm-hmm. six months for Puerto Rico, an island that has been devastated, has been devastated. Where there are American citizens. Where 3.4 million American <laughs> yeah. citizens. Mm-hmm. But just to reiterate the unfairness even on the island, so 80% of the households on the island requested federal assistance from FEMA. Only 39% were approved. Of the 39%, only 11% received the maximum grant. What does that say in terms of the unfairness? But in reference to what the Mass United Fund is doing here is that we've decided to look at this housing issue. You know, we have limited resources, and housing is a huge issue for Massachusetts regardless, right? We're one of the states with the greatest inequalities in the nation. So what we're looking at doing is seeing how we can, on a temporary basis, really help these families. And there's about, I think, about close to 750 families who are using the housing voucher now and how we're going to be responsive to them. But again, as Gladys just pointed out, the wishy-washiness of FEMA, yes, no. I mean, it's driving our community crazy, right? And and we should, this is a moment to comment on the so far quite solid and vocal support of both uh, Mayor Walsh and Governor Charlie Baker. Governor Baker has been out front urging additional funding to ease the way, particularly for the students, because there's a lot of attending issues there and the housing. And so has uh, Mayor Walsh with some welcome centers and understanding that there are some needs to be met. I was uh, struck that the Home for Little Wanderers, whose uh, headquarters actually are here at WGBH, for example, taking care or thinking about teens that arrive, displaced teens arrive with no parents. 
just to give people an understanding that that's a different situation, even then coming with families. So all of these various situations have to be dealt with. I also, um, you all know this, but I want to put it on the table because I don't think people are thinking about it. There's lots of professionals who've landed here in the displaced population, and they're trying to work. Easier for teachers because they can get licensure based on the testing and everything and be substitute teachers. But nurses, my God, we could all use nurses. They can't work here because they can't get reciprocity, as you might be able to do from, let's say, Ohio to Massachusetts. You easily could get reciprocity so you could work here. There's an extra two steps that you have to do if you come from Puerto Rico. Here they are, you know, sitting here with all that talent and skill to contribute back even as they are displaced. So it's a lot happening. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned the Home for Little Wanderers because the fund provided a grant of, I believe it was uh, $30,000, to address that issue that's not even being looked at. Callie, when you look at who's leaving the island, it's young people and families. We're having a crisis on the island because the ones that are staying are people who are really in need and elderly. So when you look at how this government can be beneficial, right, and what it can do in terms of helping the island. It's to really keep that population who is our next generation of leaders on the island, right, Right. and our next taxpayers there on the island. I want to, because beyond you guys and all of the things that we have talked about, there are some other organizations that have made the connection, stepped up to be vocal about the importance of Massachusetts connecting with Puerto Rico. One of them is Alex Cora, who's the new manager at the Red Sox. So I wanted to listen to what he had to say when he went to visit the island. This is his speaking to a Nesson reporter about his response to the crisis in Puerto Rico in uh, February. What does it mean to you to continue to shine a light on something that's important to the people of Puerto Rico? As soon as uh, I got the job, I had it in my agenda. It's going to take probably longer than what people expect, but uh, when, when we are right, we're going to be a force again. I mentioned that because the Massachusetts State Police also had gone down to Puerto Rico to offer their assistance. I could not for the life of me get them to respond to be a part of this conversation, but they did do some work there. So there are organizations that we don't hear about who have also been involved in shining a light, an ongoing light on what is still happening on the island. Again, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Aisa Beauchamp of the Massachusetts United for Puerto Rico Fund and Gladys Vega of the Chelsea Collaborative. And we're talking about how Massachusetts is continuing to help Puerto Ricans on the island and on the United States mainland. So there are focuses of both of your organizations here for people who are displaced and also some on the island. I'd like to know what are the biggest challenges that you're looking at now. Gladys, I know you're planning to do another shipment in April, if possible, yes. but what are the other, some of the other challenges? So I think the biggest challenge for me is that Puerto Rico is no longer in the news and no one is paying attention and nobody is making a priority. And people remain hungry, people remain homeless, people remain without health care, elderly people are still homebound, people are literally with blue tarps. When it rains, they you know their mattresses get wet all over again. These are human beings. These are citizens of the United States. It breaks my heart to feel that they have been so neglected, so forgotten. It's been so unfair for me because, you know, I always wonder, is it because they're not from Texas, because their color skin is different, because they speak another language? It doesn't matter. They're still citizens of the United States. There's 3 million people in Puerto Rico, and the ones that are coming here, 
and still I'm having such a hard time locating them into housing, even in Massachusetts. So here they are. We provided these type of emergency services, and today we have them in hotels, and we're telling them this is temporary until you get to a housing authority where you, where you do the application and stuff. But they're not a priority in terms of, you know, housing authorities, right? Because there's tens of thousands of people on waiting lists. And March 20th, you know, where are they going to be at? And I think for me, it's devastating that, you know, Puerto Ricans in the homeland and Puerto Ricans that are moving back here are no longer in the map, but their situation remains real and remains real when they're citizens of the United States and when the whole government system has treated them so unfairly. And one wonders, you know, would it be different if the person in the White House would not be the person there now? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think about all those things. I think about the minimal things that Puerto Rico has been granted. I mean, those are breadcrumbs. And United States has benefited year after year, has exploded the island of Puerto Rico. So for me, it's shameful. It's, it's horrible. And for me, that is why we stepped out. That is why the Latino legacy continues to fundraise hard. And that is why these funds were established to say a different story, mm. to tell a mm. different story, to tell the story of the resilience and the strength of poor people giving back and the responsibility that we ought to have as human beings. So it touched my heart and it gets me really emotional because Puerto Rico has been forgotten and it's unfair. Thank you. And, and I can see that how emotional it is for you, because this is personal to a lot of people who were living here in Massachusetts. And Massachusetts, Aisa, has really stepped up. You know, it's a small state. I would say, am I wrong that we've had a strong response, probably stronger than some of the other larger states? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think Massachusetts and New York have had a very strong response. I just want to let you know, of the 3.4 million, just to respond to what mm -hmm. you were saying, raised, 1.4 million came from small donations from individuals of the state. So as Gladys said, we are grateful for the citizens of Massachusetts for how they saw the need and how they stepped up, particularly when the federal government was so responsive. So when you say, Callie, what are the needs? I mean, Clearly, we have still 20% of our island that still has no power, and that's where the hurricane entered, through the southeast, central, to the northwest. Even of the 80% that do have power, it's inconsistent power. And what did that mean, just so people understand what that means? Two so days, a, so, what, so, absolutely. So just to be clear, the lights were finally on, and then? And then mm. the lights went off mm. for two days. 48 hours, the lights went off. That means that people could not access basic services. Hospitals had to turn on their generators again. Schools were closed because some schools don't have generators. Already the island has, is going to have a huge issue around educational meeting, educational outcomes because of the closure of various schools with the hurricane and because of the lack of power. 40% of the businesses in Puerto Rico are not returning. Why? This inconsistency of power and resources. We have a crisis around mental health issues. The trauma and suicide rate has increased. Because of PTSD. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So there's statistics that show that the increase in poverty in Puerto Rico is going to jump from 44 to 57%. The state with the highest level of poverty is Mississippi, and it's at 20.8%. We're talking about 
57% of families and children on the island will be experiencing poverty. There's a crime wave that has hit the island like it hasn't been felt in the 80s with the drug trade. And when you think about this federal response, right, and the ineffectiveness of that, it's just disheartening. But I will tell you that good news is it that nonprofit community, that third sector community in Puerto Rico has stepped up to the plate like no other. They are advocating. They are working in their community. So when you say what's needed, we need more advocacy here by both Puerto Ricans and other American citizens to push this federal government to do more because there's no way that all the philanthropic dollars that are going there can help to fill $104 billion of need on the island. Well, I think you're going to get, certainly from the Massachusetts political delegation, a push for that to make sure that there's advocacy. But your point to other Americans in Massachusetts to be a part and raise their voices and to just keep remembering that it's still going on is extremely important. What would you like to see happen that the individuals could do right now as we face an ongoing remembering that it's going, <clears throat> excuse me, it's continued to go on for months, years? But really, it's it's another Katrina in many ways, yes. Yes, so I, I would say... Please continue to give. Continue to give. Continue to give to the Latino Legacy Fund, to the Puerto Rican Fund that is established at the Boston Foundation. Make sure that if you are able to donate goods, Puerto Rico still needs them. When you see a drive for furniture or you identify places where people can apply for housing, you know, make sure that you let the organizations that are helping, that are the welcoming centers in Massachusetts, know. Give a lending hand. I mean, two days ago, I had to take this family from the welfare office to our office because they were sending them to Lawrence when there was a welcoming center a block away, mm. which is our mm. welcoming center. Mm-hmm. That family had $5 in their pocket. How were they going to make it mm-hmm. to Lawrence? And they were basically with their suitcases in my office with a child, less than two, a brain tumor um, survivor, and his wife. And they were probably 28, 30 years old. Our case manager, through the funds of the Latino Legacy, was immediately able to intervene. Two and a half hours later, we found an FEMA hotel. They were immediately placed in Chelsea Home Suite Hotel. So, I mean, it was amazing the way that we were able to handle that. But if we wouldn't have had funding from the Latino legacy of people that wrote these checks to the Boston Foundation, we wouldn't have been able to help them. Well, I think the important thing there is to know the organizations that are doing the work here and yes. go to them. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Yes. Make sure it goes directly to them. That's that's very important. Yes. So, Aisa, what would you say? Very similar. We are so thankful and grateful to the citizens of Massachusetts for how they stepped up. The Massachusetts United Fund that was created by the Latino Legacy Fund and housed at the Boston Foundation through our partnership, to be able to fund everything is impossible. But as Gladys said, those dollars that go to some of these organizations like Fontita de Jesus and Chelsea Collaborative have been instrumental in really looking at the gaps and really providing those gaps. So I would say... If you can give to the fund, and again, back to the advocacy piece, which is really important, Callie, because if we're not advocating for the federal government to do more, you know, the disaster and the crisis is going to get worse. So give to the Massachusetts United Fund, step up and advocate for American citizens on the island. And 5,000 here. And 5,000 yeah, yes. here, right. right. Yes. And 5,000 here. Mm-hmm. And again, we're talking about March 20th is the six-month period of when the hurricane hit, and to see that the devastation continues to be in crisis is just very sad. 
Well, I thank you both for an enlightening conversation and to allow our, our audience to understand really the breadth and the depth of the efforts here in Massachusetts and also the support, as both of you have mentioned, from your average Massachusetts citizen yes. who seems to have not forgotten and stepped up. So I hope that this conversation means that you will continue to have the support that is needed. And maybe we'll check back in with you in six months from now and see what's happening. Thank you both. Thank you, Kelly. Aisa Beauchamp is the co-chair of the Massachusetts United for Puerto Rico Fund. Gladys Vega is the executive director of the Chelsea Collaborative. Coming up, the Boston Red Sox 2004 World Series win, the U.S. women's hockey team at this year's Winter Olympics, all sports victories overcoming staggering odds to edge out the competition. Add the story of the Lewiston, Maine Blue Devils to that list. Author Amy Bass captured their story in her new book, One Goal, a coach, a team, and the game that brought a divided town together. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. They say sports is never just a simple story of winners and losers, but always about the game of life. No question that Lewiston, Maine's championship soccer team and coach are prime example. Their little engine that could triumph is the stuff of movies, Cinderella dreams, and page-turning book plots. Except this is no fable. Amy Bass recounts their real-life story in her new book, One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And Amy Bass joins me now from Argo Studios in New York City. Amy, welcome to Under the Radar. Thanks so much, Callie. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about this book. It came in over the transom, as we say, and we thought, wow, it's a local story. It's about Maine. That's our area, and we're very interested in it. And I'm a good reader of it because I knew nothing about <laughs> this story at all, <laughs> so I came to it fresh. But I'd like to know how you came to it. I know you once lived in Maine. Is it that you knew something about it while you lived there? I went to Bates College, which is in Lewiston, Maine, where this story takes place. So the story of this soccer team appeared on my Facebook feed of all places from one of my one of my classmates who posted a tiny news article about this team and it really caught my attention and I thought I think I can do something with this. I want to learn more about this story and I want to tell this story. So that means that you had been at Bates, graduated, and been away before all of the changes that you document in the book happened. Absolutely. Lewiston was a much different city when I was a student. Not that I necessarily would have noticed because I was a very typical undergrad who was focused on, you know, not necessarily where I was living, but but what I was doing on campus. But yeah, major transformations took place between the time that I graduated and when I went back to start working on this book. So... Let's go back to the time when you were there and describe what Lewiston, Maine was like back then in your time before the Somalis moved there. Lewiston, Maine is a town that was built around textile factories in the 19th century into the 20th century, a booming textile town. 
And by the time I was a student at Bates, that was in its rearview mirror. So it was a town with closing store shops and storefronts and empty factory buildings, um, the river and the canals that had been you know, created and utilized for this industry were beautiful and just sat. So really, again, my attention was mostly at Bates and not on Lewiston, in that Lewiston just happened to be where I was going to college. And again, it was an amazing opportunity to come back and reacquaint myself in a much realer way with this city and with the people who live there. So now give the listeners a brief recounting of how it came to be that Somali refugees landed in Lewiston, Maine. It seems an impossible story, doesn't it? Yes. Lewiston actually has a long history of immigration. The textile mills, uh, the factory workers for those textile mills were mostly French-Canadian mill workers coming from the north. French is a very prominent language in Lewiston. But in 2001, a few families were dropped into Lewiston almost as an overflow from a refugee relocation. And word spread. Uh, Lewiston had vacancy. It had a lot of empty apartments. It had good schools, you know, low crime rates. And so those few families told friends and this extensive network of primarily Somali refugees who had been relocated from refugee camps in Africa to different locations in the United States, primarily the greater Atlanta, Georgia region, began to make their way of their own volition to Lewiston. And within about a decade's time, there's some six, 7,000 Somali refugees, immigrants living in Lewiston and, and have created a, a vibrant, thriving community there. So before I get you to read an excerpt from the book, which really describes that vibrancy, I want to pick up a thread of what you just said. They came to Atlanta. That's where they were assigned. But they chose to come to Lewiston, Maine. What was the draw? Uh, Because there were Somalis in Atlanta as well. Yep, there were Somalis in Atlanta. There's some who came from Louisville. They were looking for, I think, a less city-dense experience, and I think that they were looking for a more Somali-intense experience, a place where they could create and sustain and support Somali culture in an American context. And Lewiston just presented all of the right moments in terms of, again, finding affordable housing and finding places. Education was a huge priority. Keeping large families together, another huge priority. So busloads started appearing in Lewiston, largely by word of mouth. It's what's called a secondary migration, um, that they are migrated from a a refugee camp in Africa to a designated refugee relocation spot in the United States. But then of their own volition, they headed north. Yeah, I was very struck by the longing for a community because what we learn from your book, and if people are familiar with just what a refugee camp is like, Hardly any community, really, in a refugee camp. I mean, that's that's sort of an undermining of community, even though people have to sort of band together to survive. That's a different thing. But the longing for a closeness and a community and a place that felt intimate was really a big driver. Yeah. You know, they created almost an what we would think of as an old-fashioned Americana small town, which was something that Lewiston had been longing to get back to, that sort of Main Street USA feel. And that's there. It just doesn't look like, I think, what anyone thought it was going to look like. Mm -hmm. 
My guest is Amy Bass. She's the author of One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and The Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. So, Amy, I would like for you to read from page 51, which I thought gave a great image of what some of the vibrant cultural aspects of the Somalis being in Lewiston was all about. Sure. Today, the Somalis see themselves as very much a part of Lewiston's recovering economy. They want to stay, one longtime Lewiston resident says. Unlike a lot of people, they want to be here. A storefront mosque discreetly occupies space besides stores selling Somali food and clothing, vibrant hijabs and hadors and kimars hanging in shop windows next to soccer jerseys. The Islamic Center, a nondescript three-story row house with entrances on both Lisbon and Canal Streets, is packed on Fridays for midday prayers. Women pray in the basement while men fill the upper levels. On weekends, there is Dugsy, Quran study for children. The greatest concentration of Somali businesses on Lisbon sits between Chestnut and Pine. Banadir Cafe, Daya Store, El Medina Variety and Halal, Mascali Cafe, and Al Fatah Variety. While clan identification lost much of its meaning in Lewiston, People often shop along clan lines, making for a crowded marketplace. That's my guest, Amy Bash, reading from her book, One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. So here we are. There's a vibrant new community adding to the community feel that, as you've said, Lewiston actually used to be and wanted to be. Very different people from those who had lived there before. And it could have gone the way of so many other stories that we hear, which is that people land, they're very different from who the people who were there, and there is an immediate kind of response. And we're going to get to some of the pushback. But there was one thing that sort of brought folks together, and that was the game of soccer. So talk about the vibrancy of soccer in both the Somali community and in Lewiston, and then we'll go from there. You know, soccer is one of the games that kids play in the refugee camps in in Dadaab and Kenya because it's they didn't even necessarily need balls. They would wad up trash and wrap it in things and and be able to run around and and kick the ball. Um, It was really a passion. And they'll say that, that, you know, wherever wherever you find our culture, you're going to find soccer. So that translated easily to the open spaces of Lewiston, to parks and sidewalks and backyards and It's very much a hockey town that began to see a lot of soccer. So one of the things that some of the Somali community leaders did was use soccer youth leagues to help support the kids in their community. So, you know, if they created organizations like the Somali Bantu Youth Association to provide homework help, and they would have a soccer team. But if you wanted to be on the soccer team, you had to go for homework help, right? Your homework was done, then you could go play. So it began to have foundations of organization, and, and this bled over to eventually the high school team, which is coached by Coach Michael McGraw. He's in his fourth decade coaching soccer. In Isn't Lewiston. that something? <laughs> Four, yeah. He's a biology teacher. He's Lewiston born and bred, and he was really, it was, a, it was just one of those faded coming togethers because he was a person so deeply rooted in the Lewiston community who had an open mind and an open heart as his roster began to change. And he listened and he watched and he got to know a lot of the Somali community leaders and he began to help integrate these kids onto this team. 
And he figured out very quickly that that was going to mean Lewiston was going to have a very different soccer team than it had ever had before. So I think, Amy Bass, that's the mind-blowing thing of this book. So you're, you've described this total manner and, you know, with all of that, with the accent and the whole bit, and the bridge that soccer was. And then his looking around and saying, hey, this is a way that kids can talk to each other. And when kids begin to talk to each other, then you generally have a little bit better shot at having the parents be a little bit more responsive. Yeah. And I thought, wow, what did it take for him to really see that this is the way that it, this must go? I mean, it's clear he's a hero of this he's in the part of the title. But what do you think about Coach? I think that Coach is someone who does something that we all need to do a lot more of. I think he listens, and he listens because he constantly wants to learn, whether it's a new strategy for a team or whether it's a new strategy to make guys on his roster talk to one another or whether it's a new way to think about how to scout, you know, the teams that they're playing next week. Mike McGraw is a learner, and and lots of people will say that about him. He never stops. And that was critical to be able to be the kind of coach. And if we think of, of what a coach does, right, a coach is a boss. A coach doesn't have to listen to anybody. But he listened. And he put the game first, what he calls the advantage of the ball, because he really saw this team. He started to articulate it, I think, pretty early on. He uses the word seeds a lot, Mm. that he was planting something, and he wanted to see what could come from it. He didn't know, and he knew that he wasn't going to have control over the entire community and how it dealt. But he really saw the team as planting seeds for this community. And the players got that. And one of my favorite things that the players always say about Mike McGraw is that he doesn't, they always say, he doesn't care where we're from as long as we pass. Mm. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Amy Bass, author of One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. So the divided town piece of this is in the title of your book, which really addresses the fact that everybody wasn't coach, and a lot of people were very uncomfortable, some explicitly so, some outside of the confines of the community made it known their unhappiness. I wonder if you would read from page 145, which gives a sense of some of that tension. Sure. Community relationships remained fragile. While public incidents were rare, in 2009, when Newsweek wrote that Somalis had revived Lewiston, citing its All-American City Award, Those who still saw the newcomers as leeches became infuriated. Revived my ass, read one of the many hateful comments on the article. They have done nothing good for our city. Seriously, find 20 people in Lewiston who are glad they are here. I know I can't. Such talk wasn't always reserved for online commentary or private conversations. Editorials in the conservative weekly Twin City Times continued to rant against Somalis, taking particular offense whenever they were compared to the city's French-Canadian immigrants. As a Franco, I find the comparison insulting, wrote Roland Morin in 2010. The people from Quebec came here to work, not to live off welfare. And when the Sun Journal wrote about the 10-year anniversary of Somalis in Lewiston, one commenter wrote that the headline should have read, 10 years of Somalis on welfare, while others tried to connect the story of Black Hawk Down to immigrants living in Lewiston. That's Amy Bass reading from her book, One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. So, Amy, much of your book you spend dispelling the myths that were just articulated in some of those comments and some of the pushback. But it was 
very intense in that town. And I'd be remiss if not pointing out that the governor of Maine, Paul LePage, is on the record many times for making inappropriate comments in the eyes of many folks about all kinds of groups and organizations. And certainly that would have added to the whole stew. How did it balance in the end that, you know, this soccer seemed to, and the coach and the efforts there, for a moment in time anyway, rose above all that? You know, the moment in time I think is really important. And I think that you can have parallel storylines going on, and this one certainly is. As this team was going through its first championship season, this incredible season, one of the most dominant soccer seasons on record, you know, nationally ranked this team. You had conversations about Syrian refugees not being welcome in my state, you know, quote unquote. And so these two things are happening in the same time and space in the United States. And you look at the actual championship game, which is, you know, some 4,000 people are in Portland, Maine to watch this team. The largest crowd ever assembled to watch a soccer game in Maine. And that's a coming together, but it doesn't mean that it stays together. And I, I think that that's one of the lessons here is that the coming together doesn't mean it stays together, that it's fragile. And we're seeing a very dramatic ebb and flow right now in national discourse about a story that is at the very core of America's story, right? The immigrant story, the immigrant-driven story. You know, I don't know that we find balance, but I think that we have to find moments because those moments provide at least a path forward. So do you think that what's happening in Lewiston now, because your book takes us all the way through, this is not a, a big spoiler, but the team wins a championship and then, you know, but you there's so much more to it than just the game. The toxic environment that is pervasive across the board, across the country, so one that would have produced a Charlottesville, for example, mm -hmm. um, has an impact, I would imagine, on what's going on in Lewiston today. I think it has an impact everywhere, and I think that immigrant communities have been put on notice in a very particular way. I think that the election of 2016 started this spiral that I certainly didn't anticipate, and I don't think the immigrant community in Maine anticipated. But I do think that there's always in the back of the community's head the quick ability to be on red alert. Coach McGraw talks to his team constantly about the kind of trash talk, the very sort of racially infused trash talk that these kids often hear on the field. And his response is always answer on the scoreboard. Just answer on the scoreboard. Do what you know how to do and beat them because that's what tool you have at this moment in time. And I think that that's a great lesson on, you know, the very tiny playing field to think about the larger national playing field. What can you do in terms of your response? Um, how do you want to respond? How do you choose to respond? And, and how do you want to live in this community? I know you said it, it's a moment, and we can't expect that what happens in one year, in one championship, holds together forever and ever because there is an ebb and a flow. But I was struck by so many of the individuals that we get to know, some of the young team players, some of the parents on both sides, the Somali parents and the non-Somali parents and the coach and others. And they seem to be so pivotal to what was a flow and perhaps not an ebb. And mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if there are more of them coming behind. Are there other people taking their place? So if they're not there, then the whole thing falls apart. Yes. You know, one of the things that I think that all of those sets of parents and coaches and players figure out is that, you know, we talk about embracing difference. 
And these folks aren't just about embracing difference. They're about capitalizing on it. You know, not just tolerate, but think about the enthusiasm and, and how it can be used. There is a next generation rising. And the, and the postscript of the book, which was added so last minute because these guys went and won the 2017 state championship mm. just as we were closing production. So it was literally a stop the presses kind of moment because it was a lot of the little brothers. There were only two guys left on the team from the championship squad of 2015. But the kid that scored the winning goal was a little brother. You know, one of the top scorers through the season was a little brother. And I think that they absolutely understand the footsteps that they are walking in. And yet they're also carving their own stake. What was the most surprising thing for you in reporting this story and writing it narratively? I want people to know it's not a report. It's really a beautifully done narrative story that you just get caught up in all of the the individuals that you highlight in the book. So congrats to you on that. But what Thank was the you most so much. Oh, you're welcome. What was the most surprising thing as you started to piece this together? You know, I think that the thing that surprised me the most that I had the biggest aha moment about was a moment of access. And I, I don't know when it happened. I, I was very deeply immersed in, in terms of reporting. And I was in the locker room before a game one fall and I was had my camera and I was, you know, talking to the players as they were taping up and the coach was about to give his pregame speech. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm sitting in the locker room, you know, with my camera, a woman, <laughs> and no one's blinking an eye here. You know, how did I get here? And how is it possible that this community has welcomed me in to this level? It really helped sort of shape the way I thought about community writ large. I mean, I learned so much about what it means to belong to a community and what it means to work for a community and that you need to have so many different forms of negotiations. You know, we always talk about a melting pot in America. And this wasn't about melting into society. It was about negotiating and figuring out how to, how to stake your claim, your identity, and still be part of the larger whole and make that larger whole better. And, and so I had that one moment in the locker room, which really was my aha moment in terms of thinking about team and community and how important that is. And I was struck by, when you're talking about negotiating the small things, some of what comes through about the cultural differences and how the kids, I was really particularly interested in that, began to understand each other and what was paramount in a Somali household with a Somali parent and what was paramount in a non-Somali household. It was great because I think teens would find that quite interesting. It's different. It doesn't make it less or better. It's just really different. And you come to roll with it as you understand what it means. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that Coach asks them to do very early on, you know, ask each other to go to the movies. Give a high five in the hallway. You don't have to eat lunch together. I'm not forcing anyone to do that, but your teammates and friends in and out. And I think that those sorts of moments, right, inviting somebody over after school and suddenly the snack might be something that you've never seen before on both sides, or offering to give somebody a ride to practice because you've just realized that that person walks to practice and practice is really far away that day. Those are very tiny moments, and I think that those are incredibly important in terms of creating some kind of broader relationship that is going to be really meaningful. I'd love you to read from page 254, which is really a, just a high moment of community connectiveness that I thought was great. 
Showboat gassed up five cars that morning, but he, too, was stunned at the number of people filling the stands. It reminded him of when he went to a New England Revolution game at Gillette Stadium with McGraw. The noise, the crowds, the chanting fans. But these were Lewiston fans, Shobo thought. He flashed back to when his family had first arrived in Lewiston, the days when people told him to leave. His mother told him then to have a big heart, to have empathy. When you love others, she said, sincerely love them. You will eventually get it back. Looking at the crowd of Blue Devils fans, white, black, Muslim, Catholic, Somali, Franco, Shobo realized that his mother was right. While the community wasn't perfect, it was better. He felt the stereotypes, terrorist, drug dealer, pirate, that had plagued him just a few years ago, beginning to disappear. Here, he thought looking at the field, he was a proud Lewiston soccer player. That's my guest, Amy Bass, uh, reading from her book, One Go, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. I just thought some of these moments were really quite special as you described them. So last question, have there been others um, who are trying to figure out in different towns and communities where something similar may be happening, changing demographics, to come to Lewiston to maybe talk with the folks there to say, help us figure out how to manage those little negotiations that eventually will lead to a community? Or is it a situation where if there wasn't an event or something like this soccer team, everybody would be in a whole different place? They get a lot of calls at City Hall in Lewiston. And there are folks, Phil Netto, who's the, the assistant city administrator, has become sort of an expert, a national expert on secondary refugee relocation. He gets lots of calls. How do you guys do it? What are you doing? And, and one of the things that he will talk about is that the coming together in Lewiston, which has you know, happened over time, didn't have one spectacularly bad moment, that quite often it's crisis that creates community. And in Lewiston, it was little periods of negotiation and, and again, that ebb and flow. So I think that Lewiston is a marker. And yeah, Lewiston City Hall, it gets those phone calls in lots of the community groups, which a lot are founded by the Somalis in Lewiston. They've created these really interesting and supportive organizations that have done so much hard work to make this community work. They get a lot of calls. Well, Amy Bass, it's a great book. You're a professor of history in New York. Thank you for documenting this history. I think people will enjoy reading about these stories for many years to come, and it's a great local story, great main story. So thank you. Thank you, Callie. Amy Bass is the author of One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. The book is available in stores and online now. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter, at Callie Crossley, and like us at facebook.com slash underTheRadarWGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugars. Andrea Swaye is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. WGBH.